Hi folks, it's Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 August 3rd, 2012. And this is episode 952 of the Survival Podcast. And as usual, on Friday, 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 we don't have monster trucks. We have your calls instead. Calls to the Think Line at 866-65-THINK. Again, 866 866- 65-T-H-I-N-K, because we encourage you to think for yourself around here and ask questions that make me think, and you guys have done a good job of that again this week. Actually, these calls are from like almost three weeks ago, and if you've called any longer back than that and you don't hear your call as of today, I would call your call in again and assume that you've been uh, either screened out or simply lost uh, the opportunity due to the call volume, which has been pretty heavy, and the fact that we went a Friday without a show, so that uh, backed the calls up a bit more, so... Apologize for that. I am one guy. I do one show like this a week, and uh, so I can't possibly answer all the calls. But I'd say about 30% get answered, and that's better odds than uh, email show stuff. So uh, make your calls and uh, call from a quiet area, call from a good connection. I had an awesome call. Hopefully you're listening today, uh, ma'am. Uh, there's a lady that called in from Alaska with comments on home defense and what she chooses to use for home defense, and I would have loved to play your call. And you didn't call in running a weed whacker or nothing like that, but you were probably on a cell phone out there in the wilds of Alaska, and your call was just like, I wanted to say uh, 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 12-gauge bear, uh, uh, like that. And uh, that's not your fault or anything. There's no way you would know that, but I would love to play your call. So if you will call back in, ma'am, and if you will email me at jaggedsurvivalpodcast.com and note that you've called back in and the number you've called from, I will make sure I play you uh, on the next show because I really wanted to put that call on. So sometimes, folks, that's the kind of thing that happens. And sometimes if it's a cell phone, it might be so bad I don't even know. So just letting you know, you necessarily you've called in a couple times and not heard yourself. It may be nothing you've done wrong, uh, just law of numbers, and sometimes technology fails. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one, today is Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you could ever want to live that tactical lifestyle, you will find at Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and headquartered right in the middle of the Sawtooth Wilderness. That's why they call it Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find everything you can think of there. Titanium Sporks. That's awesome. I know it sounds kind of you know, like, what do you need a titanium spore for? They're cool, man. They're really cool. Uh, another thing that you would, uh, you'll find there are things like Magpul magazines, which, as far as I'm concerned, are the best magazines and the only thing that you should be feeding your ARs. Uh, and you'll find things like SOE tactical gear as well and everything else you can think of. Check them out today. Now, remember, MSB members, you do get a discount, so go into your benefits section before you order from Sawtooth Tactical because they also support the MSB. Next up today, knifekits.com. Hey, let's say you want to learn how to make knives, but you have no idea how to make knives, and you certainly aren't ready to start forging your own steel and doing stuff like that. What are you going to do? Go to knifekits.com. Buy a kit knife, get some handle material and some other stuff like that. And uh, if you really don't know what to do, get a book or a DVD. If you're not sure what you're ordering, call them up. They'll help you. And you can learn to start making knives even if you're a brand new person. What if you're a master bladesmith and you're looking for some really cool Damascus, Damascus steel or you're looking for something like Cape Buffalo horn or something like that? and you want the finest materials and most exotic materials you can get your hands on. Well, you're also going to go to knifekits.com and find that there. Everything from the beginner 
to the master bladesmith. You'll find it at knifekits.com. Great pricing, great service, and again, MSB supporters, so they also provide a discount to the members' support brigade. Next up, want to remind you, you can get some really cool copper coins, AOCS copper medallions, and very big kudos to my uh, good friend Rob Gray from AOCS, who actually provides the coins that are at tspcopper.com, and uh, his wonderful testimony in front of Congress yesterday. Uh, a little update on Rob's testimony. I'm going to try to get him on the show soon uh, to tell us about what went on up there, but Chris Dwayne, Silver Shield, was up that way with him as well. And apparently when Rob started his testimony and said that competition can't exist between honest men and thieves, it hit a little bit too hard between the eyes of uh, Ask Clown of the Week, I'll call him. Congressman Al Green got up and walked out of the room. Uh, because in the words of Butthead, <laughs> because the truth hurts, don't it? <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was Mr. Green's response and, uh, It tells you something. It tells you something when somebody can't even listen. But anyway, back to the point. TSPCopper.com, cool stuff. You want to support the Second Amendment, share it. We got a coin for that. You want to share the survival podcast and the real truth about money? We got a coin for that. You want to share the great work that Dr. Ron Paul does? We got a coin for that. You're a beekeeper and you want to share how awesome honey is? We got a coin for that. You, uh, you're a Texas uh, sovereign. You want to share uh, about the Republic of Texas? We've got a coin for that. Anything you can think of in the Patriot Movement, we probably have a coin for. Check it out today at tspcopper.com. And remember, the price is per roll, not per coin. I don't know why some people got confused about that, but we're certainly not selling you a single copper coin for uh, for $34. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get a lot of great discounts and other stuff like that. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, uh, first responders as well. Email me before you join. You'll get a special discount code uh, that applies not just to your first year but recurring as well and applies to all the membership terms. Everybody else, 50 bucks a year, 20 cents an episode. If you think the show's worth that, consider supporting it. You'll get a lot of great discounts like the ones I just mentioned. Hey, TSP Copper, we give you 10% off all your copper orders at TSP Copper. Uh, we give you a lot of other really great stuff as a member. Uh, yesterday I got an email from somebody that said, uh, my, my husband is currently serving overseas. And I want to join, and I was, you know, I wanted, you know, I missed the sale, and I don't think I qualify for the military discount because this is really my thing more than his. I said, hey, military spouses, uh, you guys, especially when you're, when you're, when your husband's deployed, yeah, you bet you qualify. It's a tough job. So, uh, just wanted to throw that out there as well. All right. With that all wrapped up, uh, I'm ready to go ahead and take the first call. Before I do that, though, I want to remind you guys again, we are at episode 952 today. That means we are getting very, very close to episode 1000. I need your photos for Revolution 2.0. That's the Revolution is You, the song you hear every day on the air. Uh, we're going to do a slideshow of that with, with pictures from members of the audience. I've been getting great pictures and I've been getting pictures that are not gonna get into the, the, the thing folks the revolution is you it is not a pile of cans on your countertop without you in it it is not a picture of your garden it is not a picture of your greenhouse those things are great but without a person in it ain't gonna happen the kid pictures they're awesome there'll be plenty of them included but get your butt in your own picture and stop you know putting your kids there because you want to hide who you are the revolution is you get in the picture with your kids the number one type of photograph that's going to make it through the screening process is going to have adults in it either alone because your kids are up and gone or adults with children If you just sent me a picture of your cute little kid standing in your garden, it might happen, but it'll be a lot more likely to happen if the whole damn family's in there. The revolution is you. As for the call-ins, they're going great. Please keep calling in. Remember, have a special line to make sure that they get, uh, they get filtered out. 
And if you want to know, there's a link today in today's show notes again about all about episode 1000 of Revolution 2.0, what to do, what number to call, etc. But I'm going to go ahead and give you the Revolution 2.0 uh, number to call your, your, your calls in for uh, episode 1000, 866-691-5353. Again, 866-691-5353. But please remember, guys, the revolution is not a pile of tools up against a tree. The revolution is you. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first call. Hey, Jack. Chip here from northern Nevada. A question for you on paying off uh, mortgage. Um, I'm to the point now where I made my last car payment, paid that off. And uh, as far as the credit cards, uh, you know, I'm working on that. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm planning for the day when I can start putting more money towards the mortgage. And I'm wondering, um, you know, on that form, that when you pay your mortgage, they've got a space where you can put an extra principal. And I'm thinking, you know, unlike a credit card, if you do that, you still owe the same amount the next you know, the next payment. Uh, it doesn't really cut your interest payment immediately. Granted, it'll, you know, you can pay off the mortgage quicker, but I'm wondering if maybe it makes more sense to uh, just set up like an extra savings account and pay any extra amount into that. And then, you know, at the end of the day, when you're, you've got enough in there to, to pay off the mortgage, just pay it off in a lump. And I'm thinking that way, you've, you know, you've got it around. If there's some other emergency that comes up, uh, you know, and you get what, little interest they pay these days. Um, but I'd like to know your thoughts on that, uh, what the best strategy is there. Um, thanks for all you do, and uh, hope to hear the comments on the air. Thanks. Well, it's a really good question, and like most really good questions, there's no A or B, uh, you know, black or white, yes or no answer. It's, it's very situational and very personal, and you have to make a decision for yourself based on knowing all of the variables. So let's talk about some of the variables. Number one, if you started paying, let's say, three or four hundred dollars a month extra on your mortgage, once you had your other debts paid off, which is exactly what to do, the mortgage always goes at the end. It's the least pervasive debt you have. Um, assuming that you've bought a good piece of property, a good house, and you maintain your house, even with fluctuations in the real estate market, generally real estate will hold its value or over the long term go up. So you have a debt on an appreciating asset. So my, while my debt is depreciating, what it's leveraged against is either maintaining its value or appreciating as long as we didn't buy in the middle of the bubble. So it's definitely the least uh, dangerous debt that you can get into as long as you keep it within your means. Okay, So it goes last. So that we're dead on about now. There's two ways to look at this. If we start paying that three, four, five hundred dollars extra principal a month, it's not just eating away at the mortgage balance. It's eating away at the long-term interest influence on the mortgage balance. Yes, you're right. If I go in and I pay, let's say my mortgage payment on the principal and interest side, not including uh, the escrow for property taxes, insurance, PMI, all that stuff, but my my principal and interest on my mortgage payment is seven hundred dollars. And I pay $1,400. You're right. It's not like the credit card company. If you do that, the credit card company says your minimum payment is $200 and you pay them $500. They'll send you a bill next month that says, uh, okay, you can pay us zero. And I remember when I started paying off a truck early, I got the same type of thing. I would make these 
larger payments. And that's basically them saying, hey, this is short-term financing, and we really want to make money, and we really aren't really pleased with you doing this. I remember the one time we had a truck, and we owed like uh, $4,500 on it. I said to my wife, well, what's in the savings account? She told me, I'm like, okay, then this month just write them a check. And they actually called and said, like, are you sure you you want to do this? Because, you know, your credit's great and there's no problem with, you know, and it's like they'll just cash the check and send us the title. Uh, so it, when you get into a mortgage, yeah, they don't do that because it's a much more long-term finance debt. And, uh, frankly, they make their money more on creating the mortgage in the first place and then selling it off. Uh, so they're not really concerned if you pay it off a bit early. Uh, you know, they're really not. Uh, in fact, it helps them because they're leveraged against the same asset, so it reduces their risk position. So unlike a car or a credit card, there is something to reclaim if you default, and the more paid in, the safer the position the lender's in. So it, it's clear why they don't you know, try to finance you for 60 years or something like that, which maybe one day that will be given to us as, quote, the solution to the mortgage mess. Anyway. When you're paying these, these mortgages off and you're paying that $700, it doesn't just bring the balance down. That $700 you'll never pay another penny of interest on. So over the life of the loan, even if you pay off your mortgage in, let's say, 10 versus 30 years, it's a significant savings in interest payments. However, at least for now, and Congress keeps it's Republicans doing it too, okay? So don't say I only bash on the Democrats. Freaking jerks up there are talking about getting rid of part of or the all of the mortgage interest deduction, which is just stupid right now. Um, but that mortgage interest is deductible from your taxes. It doesn't make it a good thing, but it is there. So if we pay that, we save the interest, and we accelerate the payment, and we're more likely to get the house paid off quicker because the other alternative is to put that $700 in savings. And then I put another 700 in savings, another 700 in savings, another 700 in savings, another 700. And let's say one day I get to a point where I look at my mortgage and it's like $100,000. And I look at this account that I've been putting money into and it's $100,000. <sighs> How hard is it going to be to actually take that money and pay on the debt? I think it'll be a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. So paying extra will actually make it more likely that you'll do the – because it doesn't hurt as much if it's a couple hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars extra, uh, and you're still saving money in a savings account and your investments and all that. The other side, though, is you're absolutely right. If you're putting in that, that savings account and something blows up in your face, you can get to the capital where getting it back out of the mortgage may be very difficult to impossible depending on what goes wrong. And the reality is, as hard as this is for me to say, because I'm so against debt in general, with mortgage interest rates in the 4% and lower range, it's almost not worth getting too excited about paying a mortgage off. Because the money's so cheap, you'd almost rather have the money invested in some other type of hard asset or even being held in cold hard cash right now. Um, when we buy our next house, we're going to get a mortgage for it, and not just because we, we don't have enough money to just go out and buy a new house, but I think even if we had it sitting aside, with mortgage interest where it is today, if you qualify for these rates, it, it's just smart debt. And God, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how much I hate calling any debt smart. But there's just fundamental realities here that if you're going to go buy a $200,000 house, 
then you, you, with the, the interest rates you have today, you're almost better off with a $200,000 mortgage and $200,000 in cash than no cash and a, and a, and a paid-for house. But there is another side to this. There's a big other side to this. When you have, and this is, this is where it cuts the other way, when you have that house paid for, and you go from having, uh, let's say, a $1,600 total house payment to your, your, your taxes, your insurance, and everything you have to keep on your house being like three or four hundred bucks a month, right? And then you have that $1,200, $1,300. And that can all go into savings or all go into investing. Man, that's, it, it starts to stack really, really fast. What we have to look at now, though, is what's the timeline where, where all of this is still going to function this way before these guys finally nuke this thing and blow it up. And I don't know. I can tell you that by the middle of 2013, you're going to be looking at Great Recession 2.0. I, I can tell you that now. I, I told you for a long time, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when. It's somewhere out in this... 2013, 2014, now I know, man, here it comes. But is it going to be the coup de grace? Is this going to be the we're back into the economic stone age where everybody starts calling it what it really is, a depression? And does it really, or is it just another cycle with another, you know, let's load the tables up and clean them out again, boys? I don't know. But it's coming. And, and, and we just don't know what that's going to look like. So planning long term right now, We need to think about if it explodes, what's the best thing for me? And the best thing for you might be a whole bunch of money or gold and silver and other assets because if they're foreclosing on everybody, they're not going to foreclose on everybody. right? It's, it's, are they going to get you? So if it's like what just happened and you're in a precarious position, you know, you got to start thinking about how to deleverage that as well. If it ever goes to a point where like, you know, 50, 60% of mortgages go into default, they're not going to be repossessing houses. They're going to have to come up with another solution. Not because they want to help you out, because they can't do it. It won't work. It just, it, it, it's, it's, it, it would be the repossession of real property for no purpose whatsoever, because in that scenario, there would be no one to sell it to on the other side. The only reason the bank will repossess a property is because they can get money back out of it by selling it to help recoup whatever they've lost. So in that total doomsday scenario, no one's getting bounced, right? It's, it's, if it's 5%, 10%, that's, that's when it can hurt you. So you have to factor all of these in and make your own decision. I know that's not a cut and dry answer, but it is how things work and, and where I see things going. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, this is Tommy calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I'm calling, I'm just starting my first uh, food kind of long-term food storage um, bucket, basically. And what I did was I went ahead and purchased some Mylar bags, got some oxygen absorbers, and got some five-gallon um, food-grade buckets. And so what I'm trying to figure out is if I'm buying, I bought up like a 25-pound uh, bag of rice. Now, if I'm trying to put that bag of rice into the Mylar bag and seal it up with some oxygen absorbers in it, am I essentially am I opening the rice bag first and pouring the rice into the Mylar bag? Or am I taking the whole Mylar bag, I mean, am I taking the whole, sorry, the whole bag of rice and putting it in the Mylar bag, which is kind of double bagging it, then iron the Mylar bag shut, then put the whole Mylar bag into the, the five-gallon bucket and leave it for storage? Or should I take, instead of like one 25-gallon, should I start taking like, for example, one, I mean, 25-pound rice, start getting like 
a five-pound bag of rice, a five-pound bag of beans, put some spices in there, and like stuff like that, and throw it all in one mylar bag, all in one tub, and set it up, for example, like one bucket could last me one week, as opposed to having one big old bag of rice. And also, one more thing i like to tell all the listeners, um, I know that sometimes you say, Jack, that if, they, if you ever call and um, you mess up or you, you know, you're not satisfied with what, you, with what you're recording, you hang up and just call you back and you'll use the better of the two. What I noticed is, because sometimes, you know, I'll stutter, I don't want to do that because I want to waste your time. Um, you're doing me a favor and everybody by answering our question. What you do is you push star on the keypad after you're finished recording, and then uh, the little lady or vo voice will pop up and they'll say, are you satisfied with your message to hear your message to, or to delete your message or re-record your message? It gives you the option to push the number, so you go ahead and push, I think I pushed one, and, or two, sorry, and I got to re-record my message, and that doesn't clutter up all your, you know, all your stuff and make it hard for you to, like, listen to so many different people, because I know you got a lot of listeners. All right, well, thank you so much. Sorry I took up so much time. I'm such a big fan, and I just really, really appreciate everything you do for us and for the community. So thank you, Jack. You have a great day. Bye-bye. Well, in a good world, we learn something new every day, and I just learned something about my own voice messaging system that I didn't know, but thinking about all and the telecom stuff that I've dealt with over the years, I feel kind of stupid now uh, because it makes perfect sense. Many voice messaging systems work that way. Uh, I use a service called Call8, by the way, guys, K-A-L-L, -L, the number 8.com, uh, to do these 800 numbers, and I think it's a fabulous service. I don't advertise for them. I'm not an affiliate for them or anything like that. Uh, just now that that came up, I want to let you guys know, you guys with, with businesses that want an 800 number, uh, you can go set up an 800 number, and it will be ringing to a voicemail or to your phone or to wherever you want it in seconds. You pay for it. It's active. You say, I want it to go here. You pick your cell phone up and call it or a different phone up and call it, and it rings where you want it to go. It's that fast. You can get vanity numbers like, you know, this 65 Think, the Think line, uh, and you can do really cool stuff with it. I know this wasn't the question, but it just made me think of it. It's something I should tell you guys what business is about. You can set that number up so that, let's say, uh, from, let's say you commute into your office, but you'll take calls on your commute. You can say, okay, from 6 to 8 a.m., I want it to ring to my cell phone. From 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., I want it to ring to the front desk of, of our office so that it can be handled by a receptionist or whoever. And then from 5 to, to 7 when I'm commuting home, I want it to ring to my cell phone again. And from 7 at night until 6 in the morning or whatever, I want it to go to voicemail. It'll do all that. You can set it up so that if you had 50 salespeople in 50 states, whichever state the call comes from, it goes to the salesperson for that state or territory or region. You can buy it. It's awesome. Again, K-A-L-L, -L, the number 8.com. Just a little extra tech tip in the show for you today. Now, on the, uh, on the question, the answer is it's whatever you want. Um, most people, when you're doing beans and rice and bulk food items in buckets, tend to take the first approach you mentioned. They get a bucket, they throw a mylar sleeve in there, they buy a whole buttload of rice or a whole buttload of beans, and they dump it in until it's almost full. You toss a couple big uh, O2 absorbers in there. You seal the mylar using an iron. So you get a little something to use like an ironing board, put it on the top of the bucket, 
and you seal it. And then once the O2 absorbers take up that oxygen, that Mylar bag will shrink around the, the product. You then throw a couple more O2 absorbers inside the bucket, seal it with your lid, and you're good to go. And let's, let's be honest. Um, it's, it's great to do, but for dry beans, rice, wheat, things like that, it's overkill for what's really needed. If you took a food-grade white plastic bucket, filled it with rice, just straight in the bucket, no mylar whatsoever, tossed an O2 absorber or two on the top of the rice, sealed the bucket, and waited 10 years and opened that, there ain't going to be a damn thing wrong with it, assuming it's white rice. There ain't going to be nothing wrong with that rice. Uh, that rice would probably last that way for 25 years and still be... It, honest to God, they would probably, unless rats chew through the bucket and get to it, In that type of storage situation, especially unless you're sitting like baking in the middle of a field in the sun, that rice will probably be edible long after you're dead and buried or cremated or whatever you want done with you when you're gone. Uh, and the same can be said of wheat, uh, you know, especially hard, hard wheat, hard winter wheat. Uh, and, and things like dried beans. They just have this huge storage life because they're designed to function that way, to basically survive as seed in the field through an entire season of drought, uh, never germinate, and come back in a second season. So put into that type of storage environment, their storage life is almost infinite. I'm not saying not to do the Mylar and everything else. I'm just saying that that's something we need to understand so that we don't make something that should be the most simple component of our food storage plan, bulk storage items, uh, into the most complicated or into the most expensive. It should be the cheapest, easiest, simplest thing that you do is putting away, you know, uh, you know, a few hundred pounds of long-term bulk storables that are your, your last infinite storage item or your, I'm going to feed the neighbors. Couple tips on this. Don't worry. We'll answer the question, but a couple tips on this that can really help. Number one, you can either buy Minute rice and do the same thing and it'll store just as well. Or you can make it yourself by cooking your rice and then dehydrating it, which I guess will cost you lost, less money, but it's more energy inputs. Why minute rice? I'll tell you why. Because I can boil water, put minute rice in a thermos, dump some water in there, put the lid on the thermos, and wait five minutes and I have my minute rice ready to go. I can cook it on a pot. I can throw it in with soups. It takes less energy to cook. And I want to use less energy. I'm not saying not to store regular rice. I'm saying it's one thing to possibly add to your bulk food storage because it's not that much more expensive and it uses a lot less input. On the bean side, probably the best item you can store as a dried bean uh, type item are lentils because you can cook them in 10 minutes versus a couple hours without soaking them. I'm not saying not to store beans. And there are really cool th ways you can do beans. If you get a pot, especially like something that holds heat, like a good cast iron pot, and you fill that up with beans and you soak them, and you drain them after they soak overnight, um, and there's no energy real requirement there. If you were in a real short water situation, you could use the water, but it's better to drain them. You fill it back up with water, and you bring it to a boil. You put a lid on it, you wrap it in a blanket or something like that, stick it inside a cooler and close it up, it, your beans will cook beautifully like that. You open that thing up, you know, six, seven, eight hours later, and it's just beautiful. You can bury that in a hole. There are ways to do it, but it's also good to be able to just cook, right? Fire up a little burner, a little wood stove, whatever, lentils and rice. So that's just something, you know, minute rice and lentils, 10 minutes, and we're eating. If we have a couple cans of, like, uh, chicken or beef or something like that, we're eating better than a lot of the long-term custom, you know, mountain house stuff, right? 
seasonings and things like that. Now on the seasoning, this is this is so ever loving important. Your seasoning packets must be absolutely must be vacuum sealed if they're going to go in with your other foods. While these seasonings and spices and things add a lot of flavor to food, if they sit in a bucket for five years and impregnate everything, you're not going to be happy with the results. So make sure those are vacuum packed. And personally, when I do things like bouillon or seasoning in a bulk bucket to go along with it, it was just a great idea. They get vacuum sealed, and I take the vacuum sealed uh, packet, and I put it inside another vacuum seal bag, and I vacuum seal that, and I do it twice. Because I have open buckets with vacuum sealed bags that have failed. Right, especially things like dehydrated vegetables and stuff. A lot of times, maybe there's a sharp little edge of corn or something that'll poke through there. Now, on the buckets, do you want to do them whole or do you want to do them uh, with like a you know, mixture? I personally do both because it's very quick and very easy to go over to like Honeyville Grains. By the way, you get a great discount as an MSB member to Honeyville, even though they're not an advertiser, and buy a whole bunch of grain and rice and beans, dirt cheap. And they ship it dirt cheap. And you get it, and you get your food-grade buckets in your Mylar, and you dump it in, you throw your O2 orbs, you seal it, bam, and you put it away. And it, like I said, it's good for a long damn time. But that would be my my foundation of my pyramid of food storage. That's the stuff that hopefully, hope to God I never really need. And if I do need it, it's going to be like, you know what, we're going to have people over uh, for a workshop on making bread. Let's break out one of the old wheat buckets and see how it's doing and replace it. Uh, it's for the long haul, all right? And it's also for when I have to feed my neighbors. So there's things like shell corn and stuff that we're doing as well when we do that. Now, the, the, the kind of the next step away from that is now I'm into a tough situation, but it's like you're saying, and this is where I have like two bags of lentils, a couple bags of pasta, anything that's going to long-term storage in one bucket together with seasoning and stuff like that. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. One more tip on the seasoning that you can do. The seasoning in two Ziploc bags, or two, two vacuum seal bags, inside an O2 absorber sealed bucket doesn't need to go in the Mylar. Uh, if it's nice and flat, put it at the bottom and set the Mylar on top of it. More, uh, more likely, though, you're going to have kind of a bulky, weird-shaped bag. It might put a hole in the Mylar. Real easy thing to do, then seal your Mylar. Set your spice packs with the double uh, zip, uh, zip, double vacuum seal on the top. Throw your O2 absorbers in for the bucket itself. Seal the bucket. They'll be fine. Uh, they, they store very long term anyway. And that way, if anything does happen, they won't be kind of bleeding all that scent into the rest of the food. So now, do you take the stuff out of the bags? If you're doing bulk storage, it's it's just easier. It, more, you're not, the double bagging is not going to help you that much because if anything, you actually probably want, like, sounds weird, but a little bit of a hole in your, your bag. Unless you've removed it and vacuum sealed it into individual packages. If it's in the original packaging, uh, if that bag is sealed, there's oxygen in there. And even though the O2 absorber will absorb all the oxygen in a mylar, it won't be able to pull the oxygen out of the individual packaging. Right? So most of those bags, though, they're going to be fine in there because they're not perfectly sealed. If you push on them, they don't blow up like a balloon. There are some minor holes and imperfections, and that's good because you get that O2 absorbed out of there. Uh, but if you're doing bulk storage, if you are going to do a full bucket of rice or beans or whatever, you'll just get more in there if you remove it from its original packaging. So I keep it in its original packaging or I vacuum seal it when I do a multi-product bucket. 
and I actually like them much better because you can do two pounds of this kind of beans, two pounds of lentils, uh, maybe a, a big a big bag full of regular rice, a few small bags of minute rice. Make sure you label all this stuff. You can even then take, if you have room in that bucket, and put two or three or four cans in there of things that are going to store very long term, like canned meats and stuff like that. Now, I know the expiration date's going to run out. But if they're in that type of packaging in, in, in a relatively cool environment, they're going to last a long time too. And see, those buckets are buckets because of the variety, because I'm going to have dehydrated vegetables in there. And generally to make this work and be a real good plethora, I want like two. So I want them in pairs. So they're like, you, the way we would label them, like if I did one today, it would be 08032012, all right? And if I had a pair, it would be dash A dash B. And if I did four, right, then I would do dash C dash D. And I always know that A goes with B, C goes with D, E goes with F. And if you follow that protocol whenever you need them, because that's a set of buckets that I've got pasta in there, I've got vegetables in there, I've got meats in there. That's something that I can do, eat what I store, store what I eat. Or if I have a big barbecue and I want to cook up a bunch of beans, right? Big thing of barracho beans or something like that. I can start using the stuff out of one of those buckets. Now, the problem for me personally, going paleo, is a lot of that stuff now is not no longer uh, eat what I store, store what I eat. So I'm having to make some adjustments with that. But the long-term bulk items, without all the other stuff in it, that's there, man. And if I need it, I'll use it. I'll, I'll eat wheat before I die. Trust me. I'll eat lots of bread uh, before I starve. Uh, and I don't hate wheat and I don't hate bread. It just is not a staple in my diet anymore. Uh, but again, it's also there to help feed my community. So long answer, uh, but hopefully it's got you guys thinking about a lot of new things about long-term food storage uh, with bucket concepts and things like that. One big thing, rats can and will chew through five-gallon buckets. They absolutely can. They absolutely will. So will squirrels. So where this stuff is stored is important. Uh, what I've seen a lot of people start to do is get the really big metal garbage cans and use um, smaller containers to put all your bulk storage in and then fit that into uh, the, the steel can. They still have to be sealed. You, know, you can put a couple buckets in there that just don't fit as well, uh, but then put the steel lid on the can and strap it down because that's not going to protect – Uh, from the environment very well, but it will protect from rodents and things like that. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, it's Adam in Arlington, Texas. Quick question for you. What sort of useful plants would you recommend instead of grass or as a grass alternative to hold the soil in place right around uh, the house? We are going to soon be moving into our new homestead in near east Texas. And we've got a clean slate to work with. We've got bare soil. Don't want to plant grass. Want to plant something uh, useful that's going to hold that, that uh, soil in place. But uh, not really sure. Um, just wanted to see if that's something you've looked into. Um, see what your comments and thoughts are. Appreciate all of your work. Love the show. And uh, talk to you soon, man. Well, the first thing to do is to realize that, yeah, I get on lawns a lot. It doesn't make grass a bad thing. It makes uh, a lawn that is nothing but Raleigh, St. Augustine, or Bermuda, or Kentucky, you know, whatever, uh, just a monocrop grass lawn uh, a bad thing. And, and, again, I don't even hate lawns. I hate lawns 
everywhere for the purpose of just being a lawn. I mean, if you have a lawn to play sports on or something, that that makes sense. Or you have like an area of your property that's set up and you can play with a dog or whatever. I get that. Uh, but in the type of environment you're talking about, one thing I'm going to tell you with Texas, especially through the summer, you're probably going to have to irrigate whether it's a lawn or a pasture. It's not going to matter, especially through July and August, likely June. So those three months have a plan to be able to at least water and keep this stuff going. The, the biggest thing I'm going to tell you to plant, though, are clovers and multiple types of clovers, red clover, crimson clover, sub-clovers, uh, New Zealand or Dutch white clover, and I'm going to tell you, plant some grass, uh, but plant some pasture-style grasses. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that you can uh, get like that, but like your fescues, uh, your your turf fescues and things like that can be part of a mix uh, to, to do things like this. And uh, another uh, thing you can plant is like medics, so like... Uh, Uh, barrel medic, uh, angel medic, uh, black medic. These are all things that most people consider weeds, and they're clover-like in appearance. They are legumes, but they're not true clovers, and the medics tend to handle the drier parts of the year a bit better. And so if it wanted kind of a lawn like that, I would look into some of the, the pasture mixes. If you go to uh, Peaceful Valley Farms, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Peaceful Valley Farm, which is at groworganic.com and look at their pasture mixes, two that would work well for you is they have a low rainfall dryland pasture mix uh, with nitro coating uh, for the legumes, and they have a, uh, a roadway mix. Uh, Uh, roadway mix, it's also nitro-coated. Uh, they sell for about $4.50 a pound for the low rainfall and about $3.29 for the roadway. Those are two that I would most recommend uh, for you. There's a forage blend. It's more of a winter thing for you that would be dirt cheap. It's like $0.89 cents a pound. Unfortunately, right now, the low rainfall dryland pasture mix I'm recommending, they have out of stock. But if you go look at what makes up those mixes, Uh, you can order likely almost everything there individually and kind of custom make your own mix. To me, this is a useful mix, right? Because it's nitrogen fixing. It, it, it holds the, the ground the way that you're talking about. It's far less demanding than grass. If we have chickens or rabbits or whatever, it's growing food for them. Uh, now, if you want to growing stuff for yourself, some things that you could add, uh, go get a pound of chicory seed. And plant chicory. And I don't mean the chicory like the stuff in the fancy vegetable catalogs. I mean like for cover cropping. It's a typical, uh, typical chicory. Uh, plantain would be another good thing that you could add. Uh, both of those would be things you could grow. The dreaded dandelion. If you don't have dandelions there already, um, one of my concerns is why. Usually dandelions are pretty good about colonizing anything if they're given half a chance. Uh, but, you know, the I don't know that it makes sense to buy dandelion seed, but you can usually find dandelions somewhere, and when they go to those little seed heads, go pick about a gazillion of them and spread them all over the place. Sure, it might make your neighbors mad when they realize all these dandelions are showing up, but uh, with, with chicory, uh, with dandelion and plantain, I've got things in there that not only can my animals eat, but I can eat. So this is kind of the way that I would think. And now if you think about what we've got, I've got shallow-rooted grasses, I've got mid-rooted legumes that are doing nitrogen fixing. I've got deep taproot things uh, like my chicory and my dandelion. And I've got shallow-rooted soil holding with my plantain as well. And I've got all these things that are reseeders that will constantly reseed themselves. 
And I can go back maybe every year and buy maybe a pound of the pasture mix. And in the rainy spring, uh, I can throw down what I want to increase in the summer. And then in the, the, the rainy part of going into the fall, I can throw some cool stuff in there, like maybe some vetch or some other things like that. Now, the thing is, some of this stuff grows really, really tall, like a couple feet Uh, so if you have a small patch you're doing this in, uh, you're going out there with a sicket or a, a scythe or something and cutting it and feeding it to animals, no problem. If it's a bigger area that you're ranging animals across, no problem. But it's not real ideal if the plan is to run a lawnmower out there. Um, it, it's okay. Just some of the stuff doesn't really like to be cut like that. So, so, so close to the ground. You're going to want to bring that lawnmower way up. And some of that stuff really to mature, it, it needs to have a chance to get up a foot or two. So you got to think really carefully. So what I would advise you to do, is go buy, uh, go organic today again, peace, not go, but grow organic today. Not, today, go buy groworganic.com, right? Go, go to their site, look at some of their forage mixes and things like that. Go through all their cover crops and look at how high they grow, how fast they grow, what time of the year they grow and start to piece together what you want for your piece of property. The reason I recommend them, even though they are not a sponsor of the show, and I've approached them about a discount from the MSB and just not heard back from them, is because I've used them a lot because when it comes to cover crops, they have great pricing, great product, and a huge selection, and a lot of information about what you would be buying and what it'll do for you. Uh, to give you an example of something useful, holding soil, not lawn-like at all, what I have growing in and around all my gardens this year are buckwheat and cowpea. So the cowpea's nitrogen fixing, the buckwheat brings in pollinators, but it's, you know, it's chest height. Now I'm okay with that. And where I live, no one cares. Again, you have to fit this into your neighborhood, your situation, and what you want. But those are my thoughts on, on your question. Great question. Let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is Keith in Denver. Hey, uh, so I took some, uh, your, your guest advice and your advice went out a couple months ago and got out of the corporate, uh, wheel if you, you will and started my own company it's a you know survival preparedness type deal but the cool part is last week i was in laramie wyoming at a gun show as a vendor and i met a bunch of people that listened to the podcast and have started doing rabbit tractors and started doing their own gardens and have started really taking things upon themselves so you have you and the survival podcast community have made a huge impact not just you know obviously we see it day to day but Even for me, it was kind of stunning to see all these people coming together that were listeners. Uh, look forward to seeing you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. I think that's so awesome, and I think it's becoming more and more the case that wherever you go, if you are in a place that's... Um, preparedness oriented in any way there'll be people there that if you said do you know Jack Spiracle on the survival podcast would go I don't know what you're talking about but if you ask enough people you're going to find some people that do that that's the, the growth that this community's experienced I know when I was at the self-reliance expo and true you know I promoted it I was there uh, I, you know I promoted it for two months you know come out, out and see me but the turnout blew me away I I, I could not even get my head around when I was standing up on that stage looking at how many people were there, that that many people came out because of TSP and our community to meet me and to meet each other. And, you know, I spent at least two and a half hours um, 
at the uh, show, at the meeting greet area, talking to people one-on-one -on -one because it was so amazing to hear everybody's stories. And I was, I was really pleased that as people were waiting to talk to me that they were talking to each other. And I think we need to keep doing more and more and more of that. This isn't really about me, guys. It, it really isn't. I'm just the guy that, that, that started it. For this community to truly be what it can be, it has to be bigger than just me. It has to be about you. The revolution is not Jack Spierko. The revolution is you. There's a reason that we put it that way. So in these events, you know, if you're going to go to a gun show, you know, start posting maybe on, like, if they have a website or a blog. Hey, anybody from the TSP audience, uh, you know, come meet me. And if you don't know what TSP is, go find out. Uh, you know, and start hooking up with each other. And I, I, I think that, That's really where the strength of the community comes from, is the people individually getting together, forming meetup groups and stuff like that. And I, I again, I look at it and go, really? You know, <laughs> like, I, it's hard for me to accept sometimes that this has gotten um, it, as big as it has. You know, because meetup groups, people do that around, like, real radio personalities and stuff. You know, Glenn Beck or, uh, you know, people like that. Not not freaking Jack Spierko, some hick, uh, you know, coal miner uh, that moved from Pennsylvania to the south. And uh, it, it just, it, it's amazing to me. Uh, but it's not, but what's not amazing to me is why. And, and the why is because it's not about what I do. It's about you guys. And you guys just... I think what I've done for a lot of people, what, what's made it click is, it, I didn't change, you, know, oh, you changed my life. No, I just, I just helped you find what you lost, what you forgot, what was taken from you. I helped you realize that it was always there, and now you've got it back, and that makes you feel powerful. And the best way that you can exercise that is to, is to spread it with others. And we'll have another caller here in uh, just a minute to talk about another way to do just that. So I'll hold my remarks till then. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Dave from uh, Central New Jersey. Just got a quick question about my garden. Um, I'm having a little problem with it producing. I mean, the plants are getting big, but they're not producing any fruit. Uh, I have, I mean, my, my zucchini has been planted since uh, since May, and I only had only got like two. Uh, the only thing is that might be a sunlight issue. I'm getting sunlight from about 12 in the after the gar where the garden is in my yard. It's getting sunlight from about 12 to about 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I was wondering if maybe that's the issue or if there's something I could be, should be giving it to uh, you know, some kind of organic steroid to make them produce. My pepper plants are only like, uh, they've been planted since May and they're only about maybe a foot and a half tall. Thanks, Jack. Love the show. Bye. Well, it's not optimal solar exposure. Six hours better than five, but It's enough, and it's enough that you should be getting some production. Now, what's funny here is the lack of productivity, we can attribute one bit of it. You guys in the Northeast are experiencing a lot of the heat that we get down here, uh, and a lot of plants, when it gets really, really hot, they'll, their production backs off. So with a long-growing season, what we usually see as a cycle here in Texas and uh, in in the South is, You, you plant really early, you get a big boom of production going into early summer. Midsummer, your production falls off, and then fall your production booms. And when I was gardening with my grandfather in Pennsylvania, we got less of the, of the spring production because it was a shorter growing season. And with where you're at, you're in the same climate. So part of this just could be you're in the dog days of summer, and your big bounty is going to come in the early fall. And part of it's probably that. 
The other thing that we can have with unproductive but well-growing plants is either a deficiency in our primary nutrients, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, or an excess, specifically an excess of nitrogen. If you told me I have four-foot-tall pepper plants with no peppers on them, I would say you probably have excess fertility. And sometimes with peppers, if you give them too much fertility, you can get huge plants with very little production. They usually still produce when the weather cools. Even though people will freak out about it, they usually will. Uh, if you were on the air with me live, I would be asking, are you getting blossoms? If you're getting no blossoms, then we've got another issue. It sounds to me like it wouldn't hurt to go out and fertilize with like a, a mixture of like blood and bone. Uh, blood, blood meal, uh, bl uh, blood meal, or uh, uh, blood uh, and, and bone meal, uh, and you usually end up buying them separate and mix them together at about about a one to one ratio. It probably wouldn't hurt to give a bit of a, like a shot in the arm of a liquid feed uh, if you can get it up there. Garrett juice uh, is a great liquid feed if you want to make it yourself. You can go to thedirtdoctor.com. And the recipe for making Garrett juice is there. Just Google Garrett juice, and you'll, they publish the recipe even though they sell the product, and it's not hard to make. Uh, if you want a quick, easy solution with a good nitrogen shot, Miracle Grows Organic Liquid Fertilizer that's made from fermented beet juice. I've had plants that just aren't getting it done, even when they're fertilized well with, you know, like blood and bone and good compost and all, and you just need, they're just having trouble due to heat or stress or something getting that nutrient in. And it's like a booster shot for them. And you give them a little bit of that miracle Grow uh, beet juice, and, man, that stuff takes off. And people you know, cringe at the miracle Grow name because it's from Scott's and all. Let me tell you right now, folks, Monsanto does not own Scott's. Monsanto does not own burpee seeds. Please verify crap like this when you hear it on blogs and stuff. So uh, Scott's is not Monsanto. They do distribute some Monsanto product. miracle Grow is not a Monsanto product. Okay, And miracle Grow Organic is an organic product. So I believe we reward companies, even stupid ones, by buying the products they make that are good products that are earth-friendly. And the more demand you create there, the more they'll, set, uh, they'll focus on that. So those are some things I would look to do. And I think you're probably dealing with a combination of really heavy summer heat, And you're probably dealing with, additionally, a little bit of maybe a, an NPK deficiency, in which one we're not sure. So by using something like blood and bone mixed together, we're going to get a good broad-spectrum approach. And with that you know, 12-part ni uh, nitrogen liquid fertilizer from your beet juice, that should really spring things along, especially with your peppers. If your peppers are not dark green, If the leaves are like light yellow or just a little bit lighter in color than they look like they should be, it's almost always a nitrogen deficiency. And when I have peppers that look that way, and occasionally I get them, I get that liquid miracle Grow crap, and I give that to them. I'll give it to them. They say, like, do it once a month or something. I'll give it to them, like, once every other day, and I will douse the crap out of them until they green up. As soon as they green up, I stop. And that stuff, since it's a liquid feed, it doesn't build up a lot. It just kind of gets them into that healthy space. It gets those roots stronger. And then they can start accessing all those other nutrients. It's, it's one of the best things I've found to do that. The Garrett juice will work well for that, too. Uh, but I, I just haven't found anything uh, like that fermented beet juice product. That, the nitrogen in there is so bioavailable. Uh, I've even used it to rehabilitate plants 
A lot of times you'll find uh, toward the end of the spring in your nurseries, they'll be just selling like the plants, like tomato plants, pepper plants, everything like that for, for like 50 cents a tray or something. Just get rid of it. And they're alive, but they're kind of long and they're faded looking and they're just tired and they're just trying to get rid of them before they die. Uh, and if you take those home, especially if you put them into a little bit larger of a pot and give them some therapy, so like your your small four-inch pots, save those up whenever you get your hands on them, get them out of those six-packs into those four-inch pots, and you give them a little bit of blood and bone, just a sprinkle in each one on the top, and you water them every day for a week with that beet juice stuff, by the time you put them in the garden a week later, they look like one of the best plants you've ever planted. Uh, so it's a great product, and it, it's something you might want to try. I don't think you have a solar uh, exposure problem. Uh, it's not optimum, but it should be enough. It would probably help production, though, if you have any tree limbs or anything that you can re not remove the tree but remove some limbs and open it up just a little bit more. Uh, if you can get them an extra 30 minutes even, it may be of help as well. Let's take another one. Jack. Adam in Idaho is calling to uh, make a quick comment. Um, just listen to episode 937, the one you aired on 7-9, listener feedback. The stuff you were saying at the end where you were talking about taking care of your fellow citizens in your neighborhood and stuff and everything like that uh, really rang true uh, with me, rang home. We ended up uh, having a big, uh, well, I shouldn't say big, but a neighborhood barbecue at our house so people just come over and hang out and have a good time. Ended up turning out to be a, this is my urban homestead, um, people asking questions about the garden, about the rabbits, about the chickens, and ended up getting that uh, two of my neighbors now have chickens, and uh, some are think one is thinking about rabbits, and everybody's taking their garden a lot more serious. So I guess my comment would be is, uh, if anything else, we should be leading by example and uh, showing these people That way they're not doing their only, not their only impression of prepping is, uh, like you uh, talked about before, is the uh, doomsday prepper shows and stuff like that, because obviously I mean, I'm full agreeing with you on that, that it's uh, not the right way to do it. But that we are, I guess, normal people, and that we're just trying to make ourselves lives better. So with that, I just want to make that comment. Uh, really appreciate the show. You're doing a great job. Um, Love listening to it. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. First, the idea is awesome. I'd almost like to see us get together a thread on the forum for posting community barbecue and backyard lunches and stuff like that where people do this and, and, and start sharing this with, with each other. And I think that it, I, I talk about it a lot, but it's really time for our community as a whole, and I don't just mean TSP here, I mean the prepper community as a whole, to come out from under the rocks and tell people who we are. Again, I am not suggesting if you have a year's supply of food that you like send out a circular around your neighborhood saying that's what you got. All right, I think that that, that is like a, an offset breach that's it's too much. But basically just sharing with people about gardening and homesteading and a little bit of emergency preparedness and maybe putting together neighborhood watches or just basically knowing everybody's name uh, and everybody's capabilities, who can be helpful and who's going to need help, you know? Uh, I don't know who it is that can really sit and watch a 78-year-old woman starve while you could do something to help or uh, allow her house to be vandalized because you don't want uh, to risk something to protect her. I, 
I don't know who those people are, but I, I'd like to believe that very few, if any of them, uh, spend much time listening to TSP. And I, I think the belief, especially for those of you who live in anything that's sort of like a neighborhood, I don't care if you live in a place where on 50 acres there's 10 families, I don't care if you live in uh, uh, something that's maybe a little less spread out, like you know, the average person has an acre to two acres, or if you live in a true suburb. But if things really go bad, if they really get dark, the, the idea that you'll just be there and, and no one will know that you're there and everybody will think you're, I mean, it's just not realistic. Um, and the idea that you're going to get by without their help is also not realistic. And the time to build these communities and to build the strength in them is now. Again, sometimes you got to start thinking more like a fire marshal than a soldier. The soldier is sent in to put down the violence or to win the war after the war starts. The fire marshal, yes, will show up with his fire crew and put out your fire when your house is consumed. But a big part of his job is public awareness And saying, look, if you guys install smoke alarms, use fire retardant coatings, uh, practice good practices like, oh, I don't know, don't store lit candles in your, your cupboards, you know, don't leave the Christmas tree unwatered and put 5,000 lights on it. If you do certain things like that, then, then like your house, you know, won't burn down. And then working with code officials to say, well, if we build houses this way, even if one house burns down, it's not so likely to spread to the next house. So that's what the fire marshal does. And his preppers, we need to bring some of that mentality so that what we have is a neighborhood that just doesn't break down. A neighborhood that just when something starts to go wrong, immediately goes into operational mode and says, you know, guys, you might be able to pull this shit over there, but you're not doing it here. Um, and, and has each other's backs, because it's the only way we're going to get through this stuff. It's not going to be Little House on the Prairie. It's not going to be the Dark Ages. That's not where modern society is going in a collapse. There will still be some level of commerce. There will still be interaction. There will still be stuff. We won't turn off an Xbox in this country until somebody burns down the last tree to fuel the electrical generator. It's not going to be these like these novels and all, You know, they're interesting. You can actually learn from them. They can help you plan, but it's just not the way that, that real societies break down. If we look at Argentina, if we look at Greece, if we look at the Soviet Union, even if we look, oh, you have Selkawan, look at the Balkan Wars. Those are people just killing each other, right? I mean, literally the streets being, you know, monitored by snipers. And there was still a level of community and things like that. So we have to plan for that. And the way that you plan for that is by everybody knowing everybody now. And, have, and and here's the thing. You say, well, what if one of our neighbors is like, you know, really a, a scumbag? And the answer is you probably have at least one that is. Uh, by building the community now, you'll figure out who that person is. And, and in the time where it's really necessary for people to get together, you know who to send a message to. Either you're for us or against us, and you're either with us or you're not. And if you're not, you can pack your crap and you can get out of here. And it may come to that someday. Hopefully it doesn't. But I'm telling you, crises generally, when people know each other and value each other, it brings them together. The people that will turn on each other in a crisis are the people that have no vested interest in protecting each other. They're not part of a group. It's just, you're just some random person, right? People do shit like cut in front of somebody to get on a freaking airplane because you don't know the person. Have you ever seen this? 
You know, they start calling rows and, you know, uh, rows 21 through 30 may now board. And you're getting on a plane to sit down in a little ass chair and wait for another 25 or 30 minutes and be hot or cold, depending on what time of year it is, until they finally shut the daggone door and take off. And you're going to freaking push somebody out of the way to get on there. And people do it. People do it all the time. But they do it because they don't know that person. If you, I, I bet you you don't see somebody cutting off their next-door neighbor that they know at the airport, right? Because, and, and same thing on the streets, right? When you're driving a car. If, if, if you have a person in front of you and you want that lean and you get that competitive thing and you go up there and you shove your ass in right at the last second and, and you know you really shouldn't do it, but you just feel like everybody else is doing it too, that's because you don't know anybody out there. If you looked ahead and the car happened to belong to your next-door neighbor, you're going to have to look in the eye when you both get home together. You probably wouldn't do it. You want to fix your neighborhoods? I think throwing barbecues and giving people tours of your garden and stuff like that, that's a great way to do it. That's an awesome way to do it. Thank you for that call. And there's a little bit on, I think, why we need to be doing it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Nick here from Southern California. My question for you is, I've been adding precious metals to my portfolio with my cat being 10%. I'm wondering, within that 10%, what ratio of gold to silver would you recommend and why? Thanks for the show. Keep up the good work. Bye. This is another one. It's a good question because the answer starts out with kind of it depends. Um, let's say you were a really well-off family of four. Really, really well-off. I mean, you guys are worth, you know, net worth is somewhere around a million dollars or more. Then I would say, at a minimum, for each member of your family, have $10,000 worth of gold. Right, that's forty thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. But why in gold? Uh, I want you to think about what five ounces looks like. If that family of four ever had to hightail and haul ass to another side, another part of the country, or out of the country, that whopping twenty ounces is one roll of one ounce coins. Now it's probably not going to be in that form uh, with that amount of gold. But my point is, you can you can move that huge amount of wealth anywhere anonymously very very quickly. And in a crisis situation, there's a lot of valuable a value to that portability. If you were a well-off family but not quite as well-off as the Joneses, you're the Smiths, and there's nowhere near in the cards to put away forty grand that way, but you could do twenty, then five thousand a piece as well. Five thousand dollars worth of gold will fit, uh, you know, in in, in inside your belt buckle. If you have one of those big cowboy belt buckles on the back side of that, that's a lot of portable wealth uh, that allows you uh, to follow some of what. Fernando teaches. Fernando teaches, you know, a passport, a Glock, and $5,000 uh, solves a lot of problems. And gold holding the value is even better in some ways because it's less bulky, it's easier to move around, and it's pretty much accepted anywhere. So kind of in the, the, that level, having a, a significant portion of gold makes a lot of sense, uh, especially at today's gold prices, how much wealth can go in such a small package. But the other side of it is, if you're going to be bartering and stuff, if you're going to be staying put, then we actually want to be able to fractionalize to much smaller numbers. So things like silver make a lot more sense because you know I can have a silver dime, and we can we can you know barter for bread with a silver dime. If I even have a tenth ounce of gold, that's a lot of money. So it doesn't fractionalize as well. From a pure investment standpoint, I, I will stand by the statement I've made so many times. I believe silver is a better play right now. The delta between silver and gold is bigger than it's ever been. 
in, in recent history. I mean, it's huge. You're looking at like 28 bucks versus like 1500 bucks or 1600 bucks, whatever it's at today, right? That's a huge delta. And that means only one of two things. Gold is overpriced, so silver is a better play, or gold is fairly priced and silver is undervalued. And either way, that makes me lean towards silver. So most of my precious metal is held as silver because of the fractional component. I can go down to very small fractions and very small dollar amounts, uh, and it is, to me, a safer investment play. So those are the ways that I, I kind of think at that. If a person is a middle-income family that can only put away about $5,000, I would say, you know, maybe $1,500 worth of gold in small coins, you know, 10-ounce coins, and, and then maybe the balance in silver, and then try to build from there. Uh, but you got to make these decisions for yourself because either one of these metals can move without a direct connection to the other. They don't float. If you put a chart of them together, they look very similar, but there's there's some very big discrepancies at times. So it's not the same. It's not like just like like if they if they moved in lockstep, right? I'd probably say buy gold uh, with just enough silver to deal with barter and stuff like that. But since they don't move in lockstep, you got to think about the commodity value as well. So I personally like silver because you can you can get more of it in more forms with a lot less money. And that gives you a lot of flexibility. So I like the fact that I can go out and buy a roll of silver dimes on eBay. And now I've got 50 individual barter implements. And that will cost me nowhere near as much as, uh, as buying even one gold coin. One tenth ounce gold coin. And I only have one barter implement. And what if what the guy has that I want is nowhere near worth that gold coin, but that's all that I have left. I'd much rather have these fractional silver components to work with in a barter scenario. I do think we are headed for a time in our economy where we're going to deal with this barter uh, with precious metal thing. It's, it's going to happen, and I think eventually the, the ass clowns are going to monetize it. And some of what you heard Rob saying yesterday is don't do it because that will give them control over it. But uh, that's where I think we're going, and I think gold will go first. Which is another reason I like silver, because it stay, it, I think it has a chance of staying outside of the system longer. I also see some things about silver in the industrial world that create uh, what Chris Duane calls an inelastic demand. In other words, to build an iPad, um, Apple needs some silver. And the amount of silver in that one iPad is very, very small. But the amount of silver that goes in all the iPads is very, very large. And if the price of silver doubles or triples or quadruples... Apple has no choice but to continue to buy that silver. It's such an insignificant cost to the unit production, but it's a very big piece of the market that they're pulling away. The other thing with silver is because it hasn't been valued the way that gold has, it's used for things like that. Very small amounts in electronics, and once it's used that way, it's so small it's unrecoverable, and it's gone forever. There's less silver above ground today that has been taken out of the ground. For every you know ounce that they mine, some piece of that ounce disintegrates. Where gold, once it's ex extracted, it's held forever as jewelry, as bars, as coins. So I lean the ratio to silver, but the exact ratio you have to pull and, and pick for yourself. Again, the big value with gold is, especially for those that have large amounts of wealth, 
large amounts of portable wealth in a very small package uniformly accepted anywhere in the world. And, and that, I think, is a huge thing that gold's got going for it. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Houston here in Texas calling. Hey, I, I, something that we have um, for in our survival equipment that I was wondering if you'd maybe want to touch on a little bit, uh, weapons-wise, is um, we've got a few pellet guns and BB guns. Um, one of the things that we use is, you know, those Gamco varmint hunters. And um, if you wanted to touch on that subject a little bit, uh, they're cheap to train with. And uh, when, it, when it comes to actual kills, um, I mean, you can get everything from squirrels to rabbits to you name it. Uh, it's something cheap, easy to pack away. And um, it's, it's just a thought. I don't know what, you know, other people's thoughts are on it, but uh, that's definitely something that we have with all of our gear uh, for a just-in-case situation. Like I said, it's, you know, pellets are so cheap and BBs are so cheap compared to, you know, other ammunition. Obviously, you know, we've got everything from 22 to 308, 556, 762 by 39. Um, I mean, you name it, you know. Um, but, you know, just as a just-in-case it's uh, something good for the press, man, and uh, that's something that we do. Uh, love what you do. Uh, God bless you, man. You're a patriot. Thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I like air rifles, uh, pellet guns, BB guns, things like that. You know, I think I heard you mention Gamo there. And, I mean, I'll tell you honestly, I almost think that if you want – uh, air rifles for pest control, small game hunting, things like that, that in some ways you're better off with kind of the lower end stuff, uh, like the Crossman 760 or the, uh, the Daisy 8, uh, I think it's 880. These are like guns that most people my age grew up with. Very, you know, multiple pump. They, you know, shoot BBs at like 700 feet per second to 800 feet per second, somewhere in that range. Pellets a little bit slower. They're 177 caliber. And the reason is because they weigh like three or four pounds. Where most of like the Gamos, the Beemans, in uh, Crossman makes them as well. I think Daisy makes them as well. All different RWS, what have you, where you have the big piston brake barrel. Yeah, they'll scream a 177 pellet at a thousand feet per second. Some of them like 1200 feet per second, but they weigh seven and a half, eight pounds and they're long guns and they're just not. Um, I mean, it's, it's a lot of weight to carry for a freaking pellet gun to me. Now I own a Beeman, uh, that has interchangeable barrels, 177 and 22. And I'll tell you, if you, especially with that 22, uh, barrel, uh, you shoot something even like the size of a raccoon in the head, it doesn't even move. It's a lot of power, uh, but it's 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 a lot of weight to get that power. Whereas you get like you know you're you can get a Crossman 760 for I don't know like 30 bucks or something like that at Walmart. Um, and it you know when I was a kid, I shot a lot of you know field mice and uh, rats at the dump and squirrels and other things I probably shouldn't have shot, and I, I did a lot of shooting with that. And does it have the range and the knockdown power? No, but it, it weighs next to nothing. Uh, Daisy has a pretty decent, not real expensive, uh, 22. It's a Powerline uh, 22S or SG or something like that. It only weighs four and a half pounds. 
And I think they sell for somewhere around 140, 150 bucks. Um, but it looks like a pretty decent gun. Uh, it only has a 550 foot per second muzzle velocity, but with a, uh, a 22 caliber pellet, trust me folks, that does the job. I also used to have, uh, an old Beeman 22, uh, variable pump pellet gun and it was specced at about 500 feet per second and i mean i used to shoot coffee cans at 50 yards with it off the porch and and, and it usually wouldn't penetrate them at that distance but it would put huge dents in them and with pellets especially things like 22 caliber pellets a lot of what you're doing when you're shooting small game it's not like killing with a bullet it's not about penetration and hemorrhage it's about impact and energy transfer so it's like you know if you pick up a big rock and hit somebody in the head with it it's probably not going to go through their head but it may very well kill them from the, the the traumatic impact well if you think about something like a squirrel's head and how small it is compared to a 22 pellet that would be a pretty big rock I'm hurling at you And if I were some kind of super freaky human that could hurl that rock at 500 feet per second, um, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a very traumatic impact. So uh, I like the pellet guns and the BB guns, but I, I actually, and I've come around to this because I grew up with the cheap guns because it's what I could afford. I got older, I got successful, I got into adult air guns as they call them, you know, and the gamos and the beamins and all. And yeah, shooting them is awesome. But, you know, you got that big barrel, you got to break it in half, and then just, you're carrying, I mean, my, uh, one of my favorite guns to hunt with is, uh, uh, well, two of them, let's say. I have a Savage 110 and 308 bolt-action rifle. Uh, my Beeman pellet rifle is longer than, weighs more than my 308. And then my Marlin 1895 and 44 Magnum that I use a lot is like a deer uh, and, and pig hunting uh, rifle in uh, you know the wooded areas, heavy wooded areas where 100-yard shot's a long shot anyway. Uh, that thing weighs like half. Even loaded with with you know eight rounds, it, it doesn't weigh as much as as a Beeman. Where you know a little 760 or something like that, you know they're fun. And, uh, they 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 do what they do fairly well, and uh, they just don't cost a lot of money. And uh, I think they're uh, they're they're more than suitable for the type of game we should really be using uh, air rifles for. Again, I wouldn't hesitate to tell somebody, yeah. Putting up and having a, a good, uh, you know, uh, break barrel, high velocity air rifle might not be a good idea because yeah, you can store a ton of pellets, and uh, you get into like the, uh, the 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 new alloy pellets and 22 caliber and uh, things that'll push a pellet along at a thousand feet per second. And uh, I've seen people take take bore with some of these things. Uh, I wouldn't do it, but at least it could be done. So it's you know a true shit at the fan. Firearms are, are seized thing maybe. Um, But for day-to-day -day use, you know, remember how much fun it was when you were a kid? It might just be that much be that much fun still as an adult. Uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dale from Pennsylvania calling. I just wanted to comment on uh, your listener who called in wondering about uh, putting O2 absorbers in uh, ammo cans uh, with ammo stored in them. And I just wanted to say that um, another consideration would be the vacuum caused by that. I have a couple of ammo cans that I store ammo in, and I don't use O2 absorbers or anything. But even in spite of that, you really have to haul on to get them open sometimes if they've been closed for a while. Uh, I don't know exactly why that is, but I can tell you that there's no... I mean, these things are sealed. There's no way to relieve the vacuum in there. So if you somehow create a vacuum and then you know close that can and create a vacuum, 
you're going to have to, you know, haul on it like anything to get it open. And if you, you know, create a really strong vacuum, it might not even possible to be to get the can open without uh, without damaging it. So just another thought on that. Uh, appreciate everything you do. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, for callers that didn't hear the original call, it was a guy talking about storing ammo in ammo cans and should he put O2 absorbers in there. And my point was, don't do it. It's not necessary. Um, and I brought up the fact that I have some 8mm uh, ammo, uh, Turkish ammo, that is from the 1930s uh, that was not well taken care of. It went around in the surplus catalogs and all uh, quite a few years ago. And some of it's so bad that, like, I, some of the rounds I just threw away because you could literally wiggle the, uh, the projectile out of the cartridge case. I mean, that's how bad cared for this was. But the, the stuff that's, like, still together, uh, I have this old Turkish Mauser, and it's why I bought the, this ammo. And it was, like, stupid cheap. It was, like, I don't know, it was 25-round clips in these old crappy-looking bandoliers or something like that for, like, four bucks a, a bandolier. And I bought, like, ten bandoliers of it and threw it in my, one of my foot lockers. And uh, it fires. It fires just fine. So the point was, if it's inside an ammo can, which is designed to store ammo, and the military stores their ammo in there, and they don't put O2 absorbers in there, you don't need it. But this point's very good. Now, I can tell you what generally causes, like, if you've ever opened an ammo can, and it's, like, really hard, you got to really, really pull on it to get it open, it is an airtight seal. And it probably means... Uh, that you, it was closed when, let's say, the ambient temperature uh, of the air inside the can was maybe 80 degrees, and now it's 60 degrees. And just the air uh, condensing, uh, as it's cooler and the molecules getting more dense, is creating that. It's, it's, you know, it's a lot like you know when you when you can stuff and it heats up as it cools down, it seals, right? Same same principle. Uh, yeah, an O2 absorber in an ammo can. I am almost going to. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find an ammo can I don't really care about that doesn't have anything in it, which means I probably need to get some new ammo cans because pretty much all the ones I have are full of something. Uh, I'm going to get a big old like 300cc uh, O2 absorber, maybe since there'll be nothing in there because I may never see it again or have to smash it with a hammer. I'm going to put two O2 absorbers in it. I'm going to seal it up. I'm going to wait a week, and we'll see what happens, and uh, we'll do a YouTube video of that. It might involve a sledgehammer. Let's see what happens. If anybody's already done it, let me know. But really good point. Thanks for the call. Hey, Jack. I'm looking at a Cheaper Than Dirt magazine, and it lists 308 ammo as if it's also 7.62 by 51. And uh, you did such a good job explaining the difference between 5.56 and 2.23 with the difference in the casing thickness. I was wondering if there's a similar difference between 308 and 7.62 by 51. Thanks. Well, this is one of those questions that actually has a right answer, and then it also has a reality answer. So let's start out with the right answer. Uh, the difference between 308 and 762 NATO compared to the difference between 223 Remington and 556 NATO is the same thing, but only backwards. Uh, whereas we do not want to fire 5.56 in a, cha a rifle chamber for 223 Remington due to higher pressures, it's exactly the opposite when we go in the other direction. Again, the military brass has a thicker case wall. So a 7.62 NATO, the, the brass case is a little bit thicker than a 308 uh, Winchester. But that was done mainly because this is a round that was designed from the very beginning, not just to be fired in platforms like the M1, but platforms uh, like the... Um, 
M60 machine gun, full automatic. Uh, many other uh, uh, fully automatic weapons, both uh, magazine or belt-fed. And you know, you're looking for a case that can tolerate that abusive treatment uh, in, in those high-capacity high uh, weapons. So the military wanted a little bit more beefy uh, piece of brass. But when they developed the round, they developed it to uh, a specified pressure tolerance of about, I think it's 50,000 uh, PSI. It might be 51 or something, but I think it's 50,000 PSI is the 7.62 NATO uh, spec. When Winchester said, huh, this is a nifty little thing that we've helped create here, and we want to take it to the sporting market, they didn't have quite as thick of a case wall because they weren't worried about putting it in a belt-fed machine gun. And then they realized that by this time, hunters were really getting into being marketed to. Okay, uh, People knew for many years that a 306 would kill a deer flat dead. Uh, and a 270 had its own little attributes and all, but by the time we got into the world of the 308 and these shortened cartridges and all, people were starting to really look at mag pre-magazine pictures of perfectly mushroom bullets and believing they really needed the next great thing. And people would go and look at ammo catalogs and would make decisions on what to purchase based on 100 feet per second or even 50 feet per second in an equivalent grain uh, projectile. So Winchester wanted to really push what the 308 could do. And they wanted to get it as damn close as they could to the 3006, which was kind of its main competitor. Short action bolt rifle, uh, short bolt action versus a long action bolt. And this more compact, more hunter-friendly, you know, long-distance hunting rifle in the 308 package. And they really wanted to convince the public that the 308 really would do everything that the 3006 would do. So they looked at the way that modern weapons were chambered and all and said, what can we push this to? And they said, we can push this easily to about 62,000 PSI, which is the SAMI-recognized maximum pressure for a 308. So they did just that. So what you have is, you know, your, your M1A1 uh, that shoots a 7.62 is designed from the beginning with the intention that we're going to put a 50,000 PSI maximum round through it. And your Savage 110 bolt action in 308 is designed to handle a maximum pressure of 62,000 PSI. So the two ammo are exactly the same external dimensions. And you can take 308 Winchester and you can stick it in your M1. You can pull the trigger. It'll go bang. And the reality is it's most likely, especially if you were to do it once, that nothing bad will happen. These military rifles are overbuilt, by, and especially something like an M1A1. They're really overbuilt. And uh, it, it, it probably won't, but you're, you're not, you should not do it. Right, so it's 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 one of those things that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And this is a clear cut case of the weapons just weren't built for the pressures. Now, that means that we can take seven six two NATO, put it in your three oh eight, and shoot your brains out. Really, I mean, you're not going to have any problems at all because it's spec down. We can also reload seven six two NATO brass for the three oh eight. And we absolutely can, with certain loadings, increase the pressure closer to the 308 maximum performance with the higher pressure load. We have to be very, very careful as we do this, though. 
because it's the exact opposite of what many people would expect. Most people would think the reason that the 7.62 NATO has lower pressures and a lower muzzle velocity is because it has a smaller case. And because it has a smaller case, there's less powder that can fit in there. And because there's less powder capacity, we have a lower velocity. If we look at the difference between something like a 308 and a 300 Weatherby with a massive difference in, in capacity, that's true. When we look at something with this minute difference in capacity, if we put the same amount of powder of the same variety in a 7.62 case as we do in a 308 case, the 7.62 case will actually have more, not less pressure, because it's slightly more confined. And, and we don't generally fill a rifle case in just about any but a few instances to what's called a compressed load, where if we pick it up and we shake it, we don't hear the pat. You know, pick up any rifle round and shake it, you'll probably hear powder moving around in there. It's probably not. There's some, you know, 22 Hornet loaded with H110. When you're done with that, it, it's it's a compressed load. And there's some other loads, even of higher caliber weapons, that are compressed loads. But most of the time, there's reserve capacity. You're loading to the specified pressure tolerance. So if you want to reload 7.62 brass for 308 sporting weapons and you want to go beyond the pressure that, that is designed for 7.62, you can, but you still have to reduce the capacity of your maximum loads. You have to work them up slowly and look for any signs of excessive pressure like your, your head stamps starting to, to flatten out and things like that or difficulty opening a bolt, and you're better off not doing it all. You're better off your 7.62 stuff, load it to 7.62 specs, and if you want to fire it from your 308, that's fine. It's a slightly reduced load. In the field, if they're loaded with the same projectile, um, the, the, the average rifleman out at 300 meters isn't going to notice a difference in the groups. They're not going to notice a difference in very much at all in trajectory. And you're certainly not going to notice the difference when you put one through the lungs of a deer uh, or a mule deer or an antelope or something like that. Um, but don't fire 308 head-stamped ammo in 7.62 military rifles because you're exceeding the pressure tolerance uh, by up to 12,000 PSI. That's not a good thing. To put it in perspective, uh, I think that something like the 45 long Colt, you know, the gun that won the West, uh, has a maximum pressure spec of like 14,000 PSI. So the difference between the two and their tolerances is almost the entire pressure spec for the old 45 long Colt. Uh, so that just gives you a little bit of perspective. It doesn't really mean that much, but it gives you a little bit of perspective on how much we're increasing it. So don't do it. Now you know why. Now you know the rest of the story, and you know that most of it is marketing, but it's marketing that actually has an impact uh, and possibly a negative one, especially if you were to take that military spec rifle and really run a lot over a long time. You may begin to wear out components far quicker than uh, they would normally wear out. Let's take one more. We'll wrap for the day. Hey, Jack. This is Kyle with New Hampshire. I had the pleasure of meeting you when you were here for Liberty Forum back in February. I just wanted to quick share a quick story with you about uh, living in New Hampshire as a participant in the Free State Project. Um, about a month and a half, maybe two months ago, I emailed my local state representative and said, hey, you know, I'm new to the area. I just wanted to give my input on this particular bill. wanted to see how you were going to vote, et cetera. Here's my contact information. Contact me if you have any questions. That was on a Saturday morning. Um, Sunday morning, he actually get, 
gave me a call on my cell phone and invited me over and said, hey, why don't you come over? We can sit on the front porch, have a beer, and discuss the bill and any other concerns you have. Well, I went over to his house. We had a couple beers. We discussed uh, liberty and living free. And uh, turns out we had a lot in common. He really loves the idea of the Free State Project and what we're doing. He's a native. He's been here his whole life. But when you live in the most well-represented state in the union, when we have 400 state representatives for a population of just over a million people, you can really get to know your local legislatures and you can really uh, make a difference. So things are great in New Hampshire. Many of the free staters living here are huge fans of the Survival Podcast and keep up the great work. Thanks, Jack. You know, I think it's a great call, and I think it's something that when people hear about the Free State Project, it's often missed. Like, they'll say, well, New Hampshire's pretty good, but there's other states that have more fair laws about X or Y or even more tax-friendly than New Hampshire is, lower property taxes, uh, also have no state income tax. I would say Texas, uh, much lower uh, 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 property taxes in general, as long as you don't live in the foofy flu areas. Uh, and definitely, you know, uh, overall taxation is lower, even though New Hampshire's pretty good. Or, you know, when the Free State Project started, the, the, the knife laws in New Hampshire were onerous. Now they're the freest knife state in the union because of the Free State Project. But this is why changes like that are possible. Because of the very low population to individual representative count, where there are so few, I guess you would say, people per rep, per state rep, that it's possible for them to actually listen to people. And I think in a lot of states, there's even some pretty good people, especially at this, I think the state houses in most states are far less ass clownish, uh, though I can show you some real ass clownery in Texas, I'll mention here at the end when I get to it, um, but then, then the federal uh, ass clown house. <laughs> The Ass Clown House. That's the new name for the capital, the Ass Clown House. Anyway, uh, with New Hampshire, and then you got to realize that out of all the people there, and already got a low head count to rep, there's plenty of people that are children, uh, so they don't they don't do that yet, or they just don't care. There's a, a the apathetic nature, so there's an opportunity to make a real change in New Hampshire. And it wasn't so much that New Hampshire already was a really free state. It was that the opportunity, if we became active, especially if they hit their goal and they end up, you know, with 10, 20,000 people relocating there and becoming active members, they can make a really big influence. So that would be great. And I promise to tell you a little bit about the Texas Ass Clown House. Um, I saw some video. I'll see if I can find it today. I don't know if I can by the time I need to get the show out for you. But it was video of members of the Texas State House voting for members that didn't show up and racing each other to see who could get it done first. Like one guy sits at a desk. They call a vote. He pushes his button. He leans forward and votes to the desk in front of him. He leans to his right. He votes there. He turns around and he gets the vote off of the desk behind him while another lady rep is trying to get there. He like beats her and he looks at her like, yeah, I got it. Right, So they're using the fact that other members of the House are not present to basically, you talk about voter fraud. This is huge voter fraud. Now, the thing is that it's actually a practice that's allowed, but it's supposed to be allowed uh, far differently than just bang, 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 bang. It's supposed to be allowed and like say, hey, Jim, I'm not going to make the vote, and I'm formally requesting that on measure 670.1, you vote yes on my behalf. 
So it's supposed to allow one rep to ask another rep to vote for and tell them how to vote. For one reason or another, I can't get there. you got to understand, state Congress people are not in a lot of ways like federal Congress people. They don't have anywhere near uh, the income from the job or anywhere near the resources. A federal House member makes like 170 grand a year, but they also get an office. They get a travel budget. I mean, they get tons of crap. Uh, a, a Texas state House rep, I believe, makes $800 a month for their service there, so they have to have full-time jobs as well. I'm not saying that's not a good thing. I think it is. But what I am saying is that's why they may not be able to show up sometimes. But, boy, they got to police that ass clownery. I mean, I'll, again, I'll see if I can find the video for you. Now, on the New Hampshire thing, I think that this would be a really great opportunity for some other states to expand the numbers of their state reps and do the same thing. The budget's not really got to be much bigger than it is now. Again, most of these guys aren't paid that much anyway, and they're not given that much as far as resources like with offices and expense accounts and all that anyway. It's a mouse fart in the budget of the average, uh, the, 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 the average state budget, and maybe they would actually start representing the people. But this goes hand in hand with something else. I'm going to finish with a civics lesson today. Do you know... Right about the same time we got this Federal Reserve and income tax thing that another change was made to the Constitution. Do you know that your senators used to be appointed by your state's legislature? Yep, see, you would go vote for um, your your congressional representative on the in the House uh, for your district of your state to go to Washington. And then your your state legislature, the whole body, would appoint two senators for a term of six years. And your state legislatures, at any time that they felt that that senator was no longer doing the business of the state, could recall that senator and replace him without an election. The state legislative body that was directly accountable to the people, and even a state senator, has far less people that he represents than a federal senator. And with the state rep and the, and the uh, state senator being directly accountable to the people, it made the federal senators far more accountable to the people, but the six-year term gave the Senate a level of stability that didn't exist in the House. It had to stand election every two years. And that was a huge component of the systems of checks and balances put in place by your founders that was changed coinky dink right along with adding an income tax and installing a Federal Reserve. Yay. And the people were told, you get more choice this way, not less. And, of course, we know it didn't really work out that way. So that's another thing I'd like to see us go back to. But it would only really work if many of the other states would follow New Hampshire's model and specifically expand the state house headcount. And the reality is most states don't want to do this. And again, it's not a budget issue. If you doubled it and you doubled the budget to support those guys, it wouldn't, it wouldn't cost as much as one 20-mile track of highway that they're going to put in next year that doesn't even go anywhere. It's, it's, it's so insignificant. It's not a cost issue. It's, the, the people in charge really don't want, they really don't want people to have their thumb on the person that they elect. And the fewer uh, representatives, the more people per rep, and the easier it is to drown out the common man's voice. But I'll tell you that even with that being true, 
One of the biggest places, if you want to be politically active, you can forget the presidency, guys. These people on both sides are handpicked and beholden, and they're going to do the same crap, and they always have. And, you know, Einstein said it, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing again over and over and expecting a different result. But just because you don't live in New Hampshire doesn't mean you can't follow the example the Free State Project is setting. If you want to be politically active, the place that you probably have the greatest amount of leverage is your state congressional representative. Not your state senator. You can push some buttons with him, too. But your state congressional rep, let me tell you, in many states, five pissed-off citizens knocking on doors two weeks before an election could change the outcome, especially in the primaries. And don't think these guys don't know that. And even though some of them have a low paycheck, the job comes with a lot of perks. And they'd most of them would like to keep it. Now, there's some, like in Texas, I know there's some West Texas counties, they have to, like, beg a guy. You know, they have, like, a county with, like, you know, like... Um, couple thousand people and they have to like find somebody that wants like I don't even the guy's like it's eight hundred miles to Austin. I don't want to go for the and they, they, they you know they basically come on do it Tom and Tom does it. But in these in these other you know counties where there's a lot of business and commerce going on around Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, the whole Metroplex area up there, these guys like their jobs and they want to keep them and they just might listen. And I think it's much easier for us today to fight for liberty at the state level than the federal level because the state has the authority, if it will use it, to stand up to the federal government and say, here is a line you shall not cross. Where the people, we don't really have that authority. We have that authority through effective uh, control of our state governments. That was the check. The people are the final check, but the people are given the federal uh, federal form of government, the Republican form of government of, of, of sovereign states to be citizens of so that they can use that state-level apparatus to keep a check on the federal government. So there's your lesson in civics today, and here's a project for you. Pick out three or four things you'd like to see your state do, and over the next couple months, call your state rep and let them know you'd like to see something get done in this area. And let us know how it goes. Comment in the show notes. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Can't pay
Show you.